If you have a copy of uh, the scriptures, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 3 and 4. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, but we do need to sort of run up into those verses, so we'll spend a, a uh, a couple of minutes looking at uh, verses 12 through 18 as well of chapter 3. But the principles that, that I'll draw uh, for our proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom really come from chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So that'll be our focus. And our message today will be the final one in our summer series, Words of Life, where we've looked at scenes from the life of Jesus or the apostles uh, in the gospels and acts to glean uh, encouragements and principles that we can take into our own uh, gospel conversations. Uh, Jesus, of course, gave his uh, church the, the mission uh, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's the, the commission of the Lord to his churches. And, uh, and so we've just simply been considering uh, this summer... Um, what are some ways that we can do that well and faithfully? And how did Jesus do that? And how did his apostles do that uh, in that first generation of, of Christians? And so um, today we're going to do a little bit uh, different approach and not actually look at a scene uh, from, uh, from the life of Jesus or an apostle, but uh, some words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. It's sort of a, a conclusion to this series. It seemed that these uh, exhortations from Paul would be fitting for us to carry into our own lives. Let me say a, a very short prayer just to invite the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning as we turn to his word. Father, we trust you uh, to speak and to change us through your word. We pray that you would grant us clarity of understanding and uh, that you would cause our hearts uh, to respond with faith that we might put into practice the challenges, the exhortations that you have for us in your word and uh, that you would be pleased by how we respond uh, to your charge to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin by reading for you uh, verses 12 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to stop before we get to our focus verses, just to, to give the little bit of a the context of what's going on here. In, in verses 7 through 11, Paul uh, has been highlighting the greater glory of the new covenant. Uh, compared to the fading glory of the old. So the old covenant that God made with Israel uh, has, has faded and is made obsolete, which is teaching that's consistent throughout the New Testament, uh, especially in the book of Hebrews. And Paul is saying that what Christ has ushered in in his new covenant is far superior and its glory is unfading and, and is, uh, is permanent. And so it was better than that which was being brought to an end. And so that takes us to verse 12, and I'll read... Uh, through the end of chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, that is this permanent, unfading covenant with Christ, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so these verses at the end of chapter 3 are based on the premise that the gospel of Christ and the ministry of the new covenant believer, right, the ministry that he has entrusted to us, uh, are, are superior in glory and surpassing in hope to what Israel had received uh, under the old covenant. And, and he speaks of the time when Moses went up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God and receive the commandments. And when Moses came down, his face was shining the glory of God was, was shining forth from Moses' face in such a way that the people uh, were afraid and couldn't look upon Moses. And so Moses put a veil over his face that would dim the shining, radiating glory of God that was, that was coming from his face because he had been in the presence of God. And so he uses this veil that Moses would wear to blind the people in a way to block them from seeing the glory of God. He uses that as an analogy uh, to talk first about a veil that's on the hearts of Israel at this point, right? So he's writing in the, in the first century, um, just shortly after Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And he says that the people of Israel as a nation are still, or as a people, are, are still blinded to the glory of God because they're not looking at his word through the lens of Christ, right? And so you can see that he said there in verse 11, uh, when one, or excuse me, in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, that is Jesus, uh, the veil is removed. And so the only way for the veil of sort of unbelief to be lifted from the heart is to see God's word and God's ways through Christ, and so he's, he's, again, painting this picture and making the case that the ministry that Christians have received is superior and far outlasting the, the ministry of even the Old Covenant, true and good as it was, because it's permanent, because its glory is not fading. And then he gives us this beautiful uh, statement, this, this, this truth that, that personal transformation comes as we behold the glory of the Lord. So you'll see this recurring theme in these verses, and it'll carry on through uh, the beginning of chapter 4, of the glory of God and either seeing the glory of God or being veiled to the glory of God. That is the, the theme of, of these verses uh, as he approaches uh, the ministry of the New Covenant believer. And personal transformation then takes place as we behold the glory of God with, he says, unveiled faces. In other words, we've come to trust in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment and the end of all of God's promises in his word. And so we are looking to God through Christ, and with, with that veil removed, we are able then, by God's work within us, to change, to be transformed. He says, from one degree of glory to another. Just a little word of encouragement and, and comfort to you. Our transformation is usually not instantaneous. Most of the time, <clears throat> excuse me, I've heard stories and I, and I know some people who have had very dramatic, drastic turnarounds in their life. They were 
uh, wrapped up in all manner of sin and debauchery, and they met Jesus, and their life totally immediately changed. I've seen that happen. You've probably known of people like that as well. Maybe that's your own story too. But most of the time, and for the long haul, personal transformation happens one degree of glory at a time. Right? It's a little bit here, a little bit there, over years as we behold the glory of God with unveiled faces, that is, by beholding Jesus Christ uh, in, in the person. And so, uh, as we continue looking at God's Word and, 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 and receiving the, the ordinary means of grace in, in the preaching of the Word and the taking of the Lord's Supper and, uh, and the, the communion of saints in the church, as, as we receive these ordinary means of grace, beholding God's glory from one degree of glory to the next, He transforms us. By increments, slowly over time. So don't get impatient. Don't be too hard on yourself. If you feel like you haven't grown as fast as you want to grow, give the Lord time and commit yourself to beholding His glory uh, in His Word and in the Gospel of Christ. And so that brings us now to our focus verses for today. And I'll find, uh, I see here and we'll draw out four principles uh, for our Gospel proclamation uh, from these verses. So let me read for you chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And then um, I'm going to try to make pretty quick uh, work of this. We don't need to belabor them, and I think they're pretty clear. Uh, but I hope these exhortations will be, uh, will be uh, useful and encouraging to us. So let me read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God, what a glorious passage. Four principles for us to take as we consider the ministry that he has given to us. Number one, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's right from verse one. He says, therefore, having received this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That itself is, a, is an exhortation to keep going, right? Don't get discouraged. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in praying for unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors. Don't grow weary in, in taking opportunities to speak of Jesus and to point people to the gospel and their need for a Savior. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. And again, I think we need an exhortation like that because every time we share the gospel with somebody, it doesn't necessarily result in a radical conversion and transformation, right? Uh if that were the case, we wouldn't really need exhortations to not lose heart because we'd be like, dude, every time I open my mouth, people get saved, right? 
Uh, every time I, I attempt to point somebody to Jesus, they repent of their sins. And like amazing things happen all the time. If that were happening all the time, we wouldn't need an exhortation to not lose heart. The fact is, that's not how it happens. At times, in God's grace and mercy and providence, people do receive and believe and respond in repentance and, and faith in Jesus. But so many times that's not the case. And so many times we pray for people that we know who are far from God. And we pray over and over and we pray for weeks or months or years. And we think there's no way God is ever going to save that person. And I think Paul would say to us here, listen, the ministry that we've been given is by the mercy of God. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. He's entrusted to us this stewardship by his own mercy. So just keep going. It's his to do. It's his work. It's his gospel. It's his word. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. So that's the first principle uh, that I see in this passage. It's simply this. Don't lose heart. Just keep going. Just keep praying. Just keep speaking and trusting God. Here's the second principle I see in these verses. Don't get creative with the gospel. Don't get creative with the gospel. You can see in verse 2, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I think that this is an apt word uh, for the church, for Christians in America, perhaps especially, in our day of movie-based sermon series and entertainment-filled uh, church services and slimy sales pitch gospel presentations aimed at closing the deal. This is a, a context and a season in which Christians need to be reminded <clears throat> that the power of God unto salvation is not our tactics and our techniques and our winsomeness and our eloquence and our creativity. The power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We often, perhaps well-intentioned in hoping to cross over barriers and to, uh, to lower people's defenses and things like that so that maybe they'll be more receptive to our message, we try all kinds of techniques and strategies that kind of go around the truths of the gospel, thinking, well, if we can sort of connect with them at some kind of side level, uh, with some kind of secondary doctrine or something, then maybe we'll have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about Jesus down the way. Or we talk about how God is loving and, and God welcomes everybody and accepts everybody no matter what, and all you have to do is look to him and say, yes, I receive your love, and there's nary a mention of God's holiness, of our sin, of wrath being stored up, or a day of judgment, and our need to repent, we just go, oh, let's, let's go around that stuff because that's uncomfortable. There's pastors of megachurches that you could probably name that take that kind of approach. Let's just, we don't want to talk about sin that makes people uncomfortable. Well, Jesus was not afraid to make people uncomfortable. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, in his own proclamation of the kingdom. Uh, he made people uncomfortable, but he loved them. So there's a, there's a, a, we have to hold those things together. Our aim is not to be obnoxious, is not to bludgeon people with the gospel and with the hard truths of God's word. Uh, we want to love them. But sometimes love means, you know, I've got a hard word that you need to hear. 
I've got something that you need to know that's going to make you a little uncomfortable. So all of these sort of tactics of maybe we can repackage the gospel, or maybe we can come in a side door that's a little less offensive, or maybe we can fill our church services with sort of uh, things that sound like the world and stuff that they're used to so that they'll be more comfortable in our services and things like that. All of those things, while they may be well-intentioned, Paul calls those kinds of things disgraceful and underhanded. In other words, we're kind of being dishonest, right? If what we're trying to tell people is, hey, come to Jesus, then all of your problems will go away. And that's what we think is a faithful proclamation of the gospel. We're really lying to people in the name of God, right? We're saying the gospel is troubles disappear when you trust in Jesus. And that's simply not the case. And so we, we reject underhanded, disgraceful ways, and, and cunning. That's, that, that's where I get creativity from, this like I'm trying to find some uh, angle, some creative way to, to get the gospel to some, to, into somebody's heart. We reject those things. And so rather, our strategy or our tactic is simply to be the open statement of the truth. Right? So we don't do underhanded, disgraceful things. We don't tamper with the word of God, but by, he says, the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, you, you can see our consciences are clear. Uh, your conscience should be clear that we're just telling you the truth. We're just, we're plainly speaking the truth of God's word. And so our strategy is simply tell people the truth. Tell people plainly the story of Jesus and of their need to repent of their sins and to trust in him as their savior. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. That is salesmen, right? Those who travel and try to convince people to buy what they're selling. We're not peddlers of God's word. We're not door-to-door gospel salesmen. That's not what we're doing, which is not to say that you can't go door to door and share the gospel with somebody. I don't mean to to knock a particular strategy of sharing the gospel. But if our approach is say whatever we got to say to get somebody to sign the paper, which is typically the approach of door to door salesmen, and I've fallen victim to a few of those in my own day. I'm not the best at telling people, um, no. Um, But when it comes to the gospel, we must speak plainly. He says, again, to finish verse 17, as men of sincerity... As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So that's our strategy. It doesn't need to be flashy. It doesn't need to be creative. It doesn't need to be slippery. It doesn't need to be like, let's find some side door angle to take. Just speak the truth. Because if we believe that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, then we will know that speaking the truth plainly will be enough for God to work in a sinner's heart. Before we go on, let me just take this opportunity to speak plainly, to make an open statement of the truth. God is holy and righteous, and he created this world good as a reflection of his own character, and he created people in his image, to love him and to worship him and to fellowship with him and to reflect his glory. But people messed up. People sinned. 
And the first people sinned, and we've all inherited that same nature, that same inclination to sin. And so we sin, and we disobey God, and we violate His commands, and we don't reflect His glory. We choose our own glory instead. And because of His holiness and our sin, we've been separated from Him. Our relationship with Him has been broken, and now we are under His just wrath. His holy anger against our sin. But he made a way for us to be brought near to him again, to be forgiven of our sins and to be restored in relationship with him by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live an obedient life in our place and to die a sinner's death in our place and to rise again from the dead to defeat hell and the grave forever and now he's calling to sinners, admit your sin, believe upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior, and confess him as your Lord, and you will be saved. You'll still live in the tension of brokenness, and you'll still struggle with sin, but you'll have the presence and the promise of God in your heart, and you'll have the hope of eternal life in his presence without sin in the future. Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Name him as Lord, and eternal life is yours. That's a plain statement of the truth. That ought to be our strategy. So principle two, don't get creative with the gospel. I'm not speaking against creativity. A little bit of a side note here. We can be creative in, in our uh, approaches in some ways, uh, certainly uh, the arts and, and music and, and film and all kinds of things where, where Christians can use these kind of artistic media uh, as a way of presenting the gospel of Christ. But let's be careful that our creativity uh, is, is aimed at our uh, presentation and, 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 and communication and not in actually sort of distorting or uh, revising or leaving out parts uh, of God's gospel. Don't get creative with the gospel. Number three, here's the third principle I see. Don't forget our formidable foe. I like alliteration. Don't forget our formidable foe. Look at verse four. Actually, I'll start in verse three. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, back to that veil that Moses wears, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, so in the case of those who don't believe the gospel and are thereby perishing, like they're going to die in their sins and be separated from God forever, in their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, we're not talking about the God of this world, we're talking about Satan. This is just sort of a title for God, the, 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 the one who rules over the ideologies and the philosophies and the brokenness of this world system, namely the devil, Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The veil that blocked the people of Israel from seeing the glory of God on the face of Moses is here used as an analogy for what is happening in the souls of unbelievers day after day. There is a veil over their eyes to blind them 
to the glory of God that's shining in the face of Jesus. So it's no longer Moses' face that, that they're being hidden from. It's the face of Jesus, who is himself the image of God. So the glory of God shines forth in the face of Christ. And in the case of unbelievers, those who are not trusting in Christ through the gospel, they've been blinded to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's not just because of uh, nature, although that has a role. It's not just because of their own sinful hearts and inclinations, although that clearly uh, is responsible. It is because the devil is actively working to keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus. That may be more than almost anything else ought to motivate us to faithfully steward the gospel and to share it with those that God puts in our lives because if we are slack or lazy or complacent in this stewardship, the devil is outworking us, right? The devil is actively working to blind people's eyes to the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so if we're asleep on the couch, the devil is gaining ground in the hearts and minds of sinners. He is actively scheming and working to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul says uh, of him, he calls him the prince of the power of the air, another title for Satan, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here's the deal, guys. Satan is a disciple maker, and he's hard at work. He is making disciples not of Jesus, but of himself or of themselves. He's making disciples of uh, 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 people who will follow their own inclinations, their own desires, their own uh, plans and purposes, their own glory. And he's at work actively. Peter tells us elsewhere that he, is, uh, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is at work, folks. We have a formidable foe who is at work actively seeking to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we don't have within ourselves what it takes to overcome the spiritual blindness. Maybe hearkening back a little bit to principle number two with our don't get creative with the gospel. No amount of creativity, no slickness of presentation, no eloquence of speech, no like production values in a worship service are going to overcome spiritual blindness. We don't have the resources in ourselves to do that. But that leads us to our final principle that I'll point out from these verses. Number four, don't underestimate the power of God. Don't underestimate the power of God. Look at verse six. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the God we're talking about is the God who created light when it didn't exist. When the world, Genesis 1 tells us, was without form and void. God spoke into that void, let there be light. And you know the next words, there was light. 
This is the God who creates all things out of nothing. This is the God who speaks and reality comes into existence. This is the God we're talking about here. It's his gospel. It's his ministry that he's given to us by his mercy. Don't forget the power of this life-giving, word-speaking, universe-creating God. And he points to the reality that his power has been at work in us. He says, this God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we were all in the very same situation. We were all spiritually blind. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses and separated from God and under his wrath. And the only reason that we're on this call together today, reading the Bible and singing songs of praise to Jesus and praying to God, is because God shone into our hearts the light of the gospel. He somehow, in his mercy and power, overcame your spiritual blindness. He overcame the darkness that penetrated, or that covered and clouded your own soul, and his light penetrated that darkness, and he removed the veil from your eyes, and by his miraculous, sovereign, saving power, he brought you to himself. He brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the God that we serve. This is the God whose message we are to steward and to share if you're a believer, he has done this miracle in you, and so we know that he can do it in others too. Even if he doesn't do it all the time. Even if you don't get to see the, the visible manifestation of, of spiritual fruit when you speak to someone of Christ, or when you pray for somebody to open their hearts to the gospel. Even if you don't see it, God is working through his word. Don't forget, don't underestimate the power of God. And I think that's the best place probably for us to wrap this whole sort of series of messages. It's not go get creative. It's not, you know, drum up some energy and pound the pavement and knock on a thousand doors a week. And like th those are, if you want to go knock on a thousand doors and the Holy Spirit leads you to do that, then by all means go and knock on a thousand doors. But people aren't going to get saved because we're really busy or because we're really creative or because we're really eloquent or because we're really talented. People are going to get saved because they hear the plain statement of the truth of the gospel and God opens their blind eyes and removes the veil so that they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So. Here's the last word to you in this whole summer-long exhortation to speak the words of life. It's simply this. Tell the truth and trust God. Tell the truth and trust God with the results. The results are not in our hands. Our family moved here six years ago to plant this church. And we had visions and ideas and and thoughts about how things might go and, and what kind of, you know, explosive, expansive growth and multiplication there might be. And it's been slow. I love this church. I'm so grateful for every one of you. But my vision 
naive and probably a bit arrogant as it was six years ago, didn't come to fruition, hasn't come to fruition in the way that maybe I sort of foolishly expected it to, and the way that all the church planting books tell you that it ought to, right? But God is the one giving the growth. I've come to value the stories. I've come to value the, the glimpses of God at work in your lives, in my own life, in the life of my wife and children, in the life of neighbors, even if they don't ever come to our church, that the conversations and relationships that we've cultivated with people outside of the church over the years where it seems like a step is being taken, where it seems like maybe one more brick in that wall is being removed. I've come to celebrate and to value those little incremental moments, those small steps of spiritual fruit, because God doesn't promise us anything in the way of results. God doesn't promise us if you speak the gospel, then everybody you talk to is going to have a radical conversion. He doesn't say if you plant a church, your church is going to grow uh, to be really big and make lots of money and, and send lots of people out into the world with the gospel, right? God doesn't promise us things like that. What he does promise you, what he does promise us is, I am with you to the end of the age. And he promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if our church never gets bigger than this, did God fail? Has God been untrue to his word? Not on your life. God is advancing his kingdom through every act of love, through every proclamation of the gospel, through every ministry of his kingdom in this church, in this community, in our lives. God is moving. God is working. God is advancing. Tell the truth and trust God. The results are his. He gets all the praise and honor and glory no matter what. So friends, let's commit together, recommit together, to simply speak words of life and to rest in God's providence and trust Him with the results. Let's pray together.